The Gospel of John gives no account of the Christmas story and is not usually associated with it. Yet in one phrase, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John tells us not how Jesus came into the world, but who He is and why He came, and the significance of all this for you and me. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. The word, or logos, carried great significance in the philosophy of the ancient world, and John in his gospel took full advantage of its importance to show us the implications of God sending his Son to dwell among men. Listen now as Dr. Boyce takes us through John's reasoning and his declaration of who Christ is, why he came, and why we celebrate the Christmas season. Every year in the week or the months before Christmas, I go over the list of all of the texts and topics that I've used in previous years to see if perhaps there's a passage in the Bible that has to do with Christmas that I somehow overlooked. And this year when I looked over the list of subjects that I'd used previously, I made an interesting discovery. I discovered that I had never, on Christmas Sunday, preached from the first chapter of John's Gospel. That's a significant omission, but I guess it's also understandable because at Christmas time we tend naturally, and I suppose rightly, to think of the Christmas stories, that is, the narratives that have to do with the birth of Jesus Christ. You go to Matthew and Luke, you have that wonderful account of the appearance of the angels, first of all, to Mary and to Joseph to announce the coming of the child. And you have the journey to Bethlehem as the family, because of the decree of Caesar, had to leave their hometown and go to the town of their ancestors. You have the account of the birth. While they were there, Jesus Christ was born, and this poor family that laid him in a manger and they didn't even have room in the inn for them to stay. And then the angels appear to the shepherds out in the fields of Bethlehem, and the heavens are filled with the glory. And when the angels return to heaven, the shepherds go into the town to see the baby, and they see him, and they go away rejoicing. And sometime later, probably years later, the magi come, and they present their gifts. All of that as in the other two Gospels. But here in John, we're told why he came. John does this in an amazing way, and I'd like you to see some of the amazing things about it today. Perhaps the most striking thing of all is the word he uses to talk about Jesus Christ before his incarnation, that is, before his birth. It's actually the word, word itself. The Greek word is logos, but you translate it word. It's a powerful term. You know, we have a lot of words which are quite common but because of their association with philosophy or science or history, take on a meaning all their own that, that is greater than the simple translation of the word. And that's the case with this word logos. About 600 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, thousands of years ago now, there was a philosopher who lived in Ephesus, a Greek philosopher, and his name was Heraclitus. Most people today don't know much about the Greek philosophers, but if you took a course in philosophy in college and had an introduction to Greek thought, you may recall that this man Heraclitus said, the words for which he's best known, that you can never step into the same river twice. 
What Heraclitus meant by that was this, everything is changing all the time, so you can never repeat anything exactly. Now, the Greek philosophers reasoned that all of life was like that. Everything we see is in perpetual change. Nothing is ever simply standing still. History doesn't stand still. Nature doesn't stand still. We don't stand still. Everything is changing. But they asked this question, if everything is changing all the time, why is it that everything is not in chaos? All things are moving. Why aren't they just flying off in all kinds of random directions? The answer they gave to that was significant. They said, the reason things are not in chaos is that the order we perceive is not random order. It's ordered order. The change we see is ordered. And they said, well, now, why is that? They said, well, there must be an order that stands behind it. There must be something that governs all the change that we see. They didn't know anything about it. They were only speculating. This is philosophy after all. But they, they said, uh, it's, it's like a word that gives order to everything. And so they used the word logos. Now, the Greeks were very thorough in their philosophy, as I'm sure you know. And so once Heraclitus had discovered, as he thought, the principle that provided order in nature, he just extended that to everything else, to order in the minds of men and women. Why do we think in rational categories? Why aren't our thoughts just random thoughts? Well, he said, that's because there's a divine reason that stands behind our reason and gives order to our reason. Why is history meaningful? Why, why aren't events in history utterly chaotic? Well, he said it's because there is a divine providence that stands behind the change we see in history. The term Heraclitus used for that was logos, and that became uh, sort of the, the dominant philosophical idea with the Greeks. This idea, logos, was not only the dominant idea in Greek philosophy, it was the dominant philosophical apologetical tool used by the early Christian apologists. And of course, where they got it was from John's gospel, because what John is saying, you see, is that this reason, this word before all the words that we hear, this word who is God has become flesh. And because of that, we know what God is like. You see, when the philosophers were reasoning about this, they were reasoning abstractly, and as a result of that, what they came up with was an abstraction. That meant they had discovered, as they believed, the word that's before all words, but if I may put it this way, it was a silent word to Heraclitus. And deep in their hearts, the best of them wished more or less that some time or other they might actually hear that word of God. For the Greeks, you see, the universe was silent, and what they wanted to do was hear God. You know, one of our carols that we sing at Christmas, perhaps the most popular of all, is Silent Night. And I guess there was a certain silence to that far-off night long ago when Jesus Christ was born. But I want you to remember this. Although we speak about a silent night, we do not have a silent God. Remember Francis Schaeffer's book by the title, He is There and he is not silent. You see, that's the glory of Christianity. By your philosophy, you can reason that perhaps there's a God. You can reason there must be a God. You can yearn wistfully for that God to reveal himself, but it's in Christianity that he does, and the way he has done it in Jesus Christ. That's what John is saying here in the beginning of this letter. He's saying to his readers, Greek and Jew and Roman alike, that Word 
It was before all words has become flesh, and as a result of that, we can know God. Now, he says something else about him, too, and that's in this first verse. He makes three significant statements, and you know, it's marvelous what those statements do. They contain a whole doctrine of the Trinity. Just look at each of them. John says three things. First of all, in the beginning was the Word. When you begin to think about Jesus Christ, that little baby that was born in the manger, you don't even begin to understand him unless you realize that before anything that we see or know ever came into existence, he was and he always was, and it's because he was that all the things we know have come into existence. You see, that's what he's going to go on to say, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that's been made. If it wasn't for Jesus, there wouldn't be anything. Well, that little baby didn't have his beginning there in the manger, that little baby was the pre-existent God. How about Hebrews 1, 1 and 2? Here the author is writing about God's past revelation, and he says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets many times and in various ways. But in these last days, that is, in his own time, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. How about Philippians 2? There Paul is talking about the incarnation, Jesus becoming man in order that he might die upon the cross for our salvation, but he begins it by saying that he was in the very form of God. So he looks back to eternity past. You go to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and there Jesus is described as the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. He was there at the beginning, and he is most certainly going to be there at the end. That's our Savior. Now John says you have to understand that about him. The second thing he says about him is that he was with God. Now that's why I say that he's talking about the Trinity here and doing it in a very sensitive way and subtle way also. With God, you see. When you say in the beginning was the Word, what you tend to think of is that, well, that term, Word, is a synonym for God the Father. But John isn't exactly saying that. He's talking about Jesus Christ. He's using the word, not of God the Father, but of God the Son. And so the second phrase distinguishes. He's saying this Logos, who was there in the beginning, nevertheless was there in the beginning with God. In other words, he's talking about a second personality alongside the first personality. Now, you might say at that point, well, then he's preaching polytheism, two or more gods. But no, he's not doing that either, because the next phrase draws it all together. You see what he says? He says, and the Word was God. Different personalities within the Godhead, but nevertheless, one God. Now, just apply that. When you look at that baby in the manger, and that's what we tend to do in our minds at Christmas time, you have to ask the question, who is that child? You see, they ask that about Jesus Christ all down through his life. If you go through the Gospels, you'll find the question again and again. Matthew 21, 10, who is this? Mark 4, 41, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Herod said, Luke 9, 9, I beheaded. John, who is this about whom I hear such things? Or Luke 5, 22, his enemy said, who is this fellow? He seems to be speaking blasphemy. That's the question, who is he? Now, one of our carols does that. You know it, the words go like this. Who is this so weak? And helpless, child, of lowly Hebrew maid, rudely in a stable, sheltered, coldly in a manger laid? It's all one big question. Who is this? And then the carol answers, "'Tis the Lord of all creation, who this wondrous path hath trod. He is God from everlasting into everlasting God." Well, that's exactly 
what John is saying here at the very beginning of his gospel. Now, you see, what that means is that everything that you can say about God, you can say in a certain sense about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. God the Father has not become man. God the Son has done that. But in God the Son, we learn what God the Father is like. You say, is God loving? Yes, he's loving because Jesus Christ is loving. That's how we know it. Is God wise? Yes, because Jesus Christ is wise, compassionate, powerful, understanding, all the things, you see, that are so important for us to know. We know that because of Jesus Christ. For all his brilliance, Plato could only speculate about these things and say wistfully, maybe one day a word will come forth from God who will make all things plain. And what we're told here is that that word has come, and we now are in a far better state than Plato ever was. We know he has come, and we know God in Jesus Christ. Now, there's one other thing that John says here, and I'm sure you've noticed it. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. I suppose each of us have our favorite Christmas carols, and my favorite one, because I think it has the greatest theology, is Charles Wesley's Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's got a verse in it that goes like this, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Now that third line of that stanza of the carol, light and life to all he brings, is something Wesley got from this prelude to John's gospel, because that's what John says. He says, in him was life, and that life was the light of man. Wesley was very smart to pick that up because those two things, you see, embrace all we really need, and they tell us that that comes from Jesus Christ. First of all, you've got life. What kind of life is that? Well, physical life at least. Here in this first chapter, John is looking back to Genesis when he says, in the beginning, everybody thinks of Genesis 1, and it's right that we do, and he says Jesus created all things, and it makes you think of creation. Well, you go back to Genesis 1, and you find that life comes from God. God formed the man out of the dust of the earth, and he was a lifeless object until God breathed into him. When God breathed some of his life into the lifeless object, man became a living soul. And so we get our life from God, and what John is saying here is that life comes from Jesus Christ because he was God's agent in the creation. If you're alive, you owe that life to Jesus Christ. So you're in his debt for that. He has given you life itself. But it's not only physical life that he's talking about, because when you go on in John's gospel and find him talking about life again and again, you find that he's talking about more than physical life. He's talking about spiritual life. And what he's saying in the gospel is that we need to be born again spiritually. We were born once in the sense that we've become physically alive, but now we need to be born again. And the life that we need in order to be born again likewise comes from Jesus Christ. Look, you find it just a little bit further on here, verses 12 and 13 in this chapter. He's talking about this new birth. He says, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children who were born not of natural descent or of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus, when he was talking to Nicodemus, said the same thing. Nicodemus came to discuss spiritual matters, and he said to Nicodemus, you can't even understand spiritual things enough to talk about them unless you're born again. 
The word he used for again actually means from above, and it was a reference back to Genesis. And what he's saying is this. He's using that image of the first creation of Adam. And he's saying, just as God had to breathe into lifeless Adam, so Adam became a living soul, so does God have to breathe into you now, spiritually, so you become a living spiritual being. Now we have to begin to think that way as Christians. As you go around in the world and look at people, they all seem to be alike, don't they? They're all alive, they're all doing their things, but from God's point of view, some of them are alive and some are dead, that is, spiritually. And you find that out as soon as you begin to talk about spiritual things. Some people don't have the faintest idea what you're talking about. It's just utter foolishness to them to talk about Jesus Christ or Christmas or the incarnation or salvation or the death on the cross or the resurrection or the new birth or the life of the Holy Spirit or fellowship within the body of Christ or the coming again of Jesus or the final judgment or anything that you can mention. Utterly foolishness to such people. Why? Because they're dead. But you see, there are others, and as soon as you're with them, you recognize that there's a new life. You hardly have to say anything, a slight little illusion, and they pick up on it right away. They say, oh yeah, you're a Christian, aren't you? You know, so am I. And they begin to share something of that new life that they have from Jesus Christ. And what John is saying here, you see, is that it comes from Jesus. You're never going to find spiritual life apart from him. The second thing he talks about is light. In him was life, and the light was the light of man. And notice how he links it. Light has to do with illumination and understanding. You see, when the light goes on, you can see. And sometimes we use it metaphorically ourselves. We said, ah, oh, the light came on. And you finally got it. That's exactly the way John is using the word. But he links it with life because you don't have light without life. You can understand spiritual things until you're made spiritually alive. So in him was life, and that life became the light of man. So you come to find life in Jesus Christ, new birth, and the Bible becomes a new book to you. And you read it and you say, oh, that's what it was about. I didn't understand that before. Isn't that wonderful? Look, that, that's explaining things that I never really understood before. I've always wondered why life is the way it is and why things happen the way they do and who I am and what I'm doing here and if there's any meaning to any of it. And now I read the Bible and I find that it's all laid out there in those pages. You see, you find that from Jesus Christ. In order to find it, you have to come to him. You have to get to know him. You have to spend time with him. Really, everything we need is in Jesus Christ. You know, in the third chapter of Ephesians, there's a great verse in which Paul is writing to the Christians in Ephesus, and he's wishing them to be filled with all the fullness of God. You know, it's an incredible expression, God being infinite, for us to be filled with all the fullness of God. It's just an incredible conception. But look how he puts it. He prays that they might be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to be filled with the fullness of the measure of the fullness of God. So he got four dimensions there. He wants us to know it all. Well, there's a story that goes with that. Back in the Napoleonic era in Europe, the soldiers of Napoleon took over a prison where the Inquisition had held prisoners. And when they went into one of these cells, they found the remains of a prisoner. He had long since died, the body had decayed, there was just a, a skeleton there, and around one of the legs there was an iron ring attached to a chain that was attached to the wall. So obviously here was a prisoner, he'd been kept in this dungeon all these years and had died there. We would say a hopeless situation, sad. But on the wall, of this cell, the soldiers found this. They found a crude cross in the wall, scratched with some kind of a hard instrument. And then at each of the points of the cross, they found one of these words. 
uh, Spanish version of the Bible, indicating these four dimensions, height, depth, breadth, and length. And you see, what that prisoner obviously had done was comfort himself with the thought that in Jesus Christ he had all he needed. You would say of that prisoner, well, he needed fellowship because he was cut off from everybody. He needed health because he was suffering physically, and certainly he wasn't well taken care of. And all of those things were terrible, yes, but you see, he, he focused on Jesus Christ, and he was saying, in him is life, and that life is the light of man. He himself said on one occasion, what does it profit a person if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You could put that in other language. You could say, what does it profit you if you get everything you want this Christmas, but you lack spiritual life and light, which you can have alone in Jesus? You see, you could have all the things of the world, and when time passes, all those things will pass away, and you can be separated from God forever and ever. On the other hand, you can lack all things, like the prisoner, and be rich, because you have light and life in Jesus Christ, the Logos, the Word of God, who became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what it's all about. You see, I said, when I began, here's a passage that doesn't appeal to us quite so much because it doesn't tell the story, it's not narrative, we like stories, and you read it and you say, oh yeah, it's philosophical language, it sounds difficult, but it isn't really all that difficult. All it says is that Jesus is God, and it says if you want to know what God is like, you find it out in Jesus. And it tells us everything you need you find in Him. Let me say one final thing, and it's this. I've spoken of Jesus Christ being the Word before all words, but let me point out that He's not only that. There is also a sense in which He's the last Word, that is, in which He's going to have the final Word. He's going to speak the final Word about us. Paul says that that judgment, every mouth is going to be stopped, and there's that wonderful passage in the book of Revelation, perhaps the one I like the best, before the opening of the seventh seal, where it says there was silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. I'd be glad to have silence on earth for five minutes, especially at Christmas time, but in heaven, even the angels are going to stop singing for half an hour, as the truth of judgment and the rightness of judgment sinks in to human hearts. That day is coming, and what I want to suggest is that it would be wise, for the sake of your own soul, not to wait for that day. But get silent before God now. You see, that word that was at the beginning, before all words, and that word that's going to be at the end, the last word that's going to be spoken on your condition, is also a living word who speaks now. If you quiet your heart, shut your mouth, and stop trying to make excuses, and pray, it may well be that that eternal Logos of God will speak to you and call your name and draw you to himself. We sing, Speak, Lord, in the stillness while I wait on thee. Hushed my heart to listen in expectancy. You expect it. You'll find that he'll be there even before your expectation because he loves you and he came to be your savior. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel, how glorious it is. We thank you for Christmas and the wonder of the incarnation. And we thank you for the passage that explains its meaning that we've studied just now. Do bless it to each heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from the Bible Study Hour, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. 
The Alliance is a coalition of believers that hold to the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. To learn more about the Alliance, select the appropriate link at thebiblestudyhour.org. Write to us at 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Your financial support makes our broadcasting, publishing, online, and event ministries possible. Please consider making a gift at our websites by phone at 1-800-488-1888 or by mail. Canadian listeners can reach us at P.O. Box 24097, RPO Josephine, North Bay, Ontario, P1B0C7. Thank you for your prayers and gifts and for listening to the Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically.